Good morning, Hallmark. Um, I'm sorry that I can't be there in person with you this morning. Uh, I woke up with a fever and with everything that's been uh, going on, I didn't want to risk uh, exposing anyone to whatever I might have. Um, but thankfully, I'm feeling well enough to do this recording, so I appreciate you uh, bearing with us during just these these crazy times. Uh, if, if you're new, my name is Nathan. I'm blessed to serve uh, on staff here at Hallmark. If you have your Bibles or your Bible app, please open up with me to Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5. I have the privilege of uh, kicking off our brand new sermon series. It'll take us through the rest of the summer. It'll take us into fall, and we're going to be studying the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, no doubt, uh, just the most famous sermon of all time, and for good reason. Um, and Jesus, although his wording is pretty straightforward in this sermon, he packs uh, so much truth, uh, so much power, and so much meaning into these three chapters that I'm excited that we're going to have a chance to at least dive into a little bit of it together. But because this is such a rich uh, section of the Bible, uh, we're not going to be able to uh, hone in on every uh, single detail in this sermon, um, but we're going to try to give the highlights as best as we can. But I want to encourage you to take these next couple months um, to be reading uh, Matthew chapter 5 uh, through chapter 7. You know, Pastor John often encourages us on Fridays or Saturdays to plan, prepare, and pray for Sunday, and this would be a great way to do that. So I hope you're ready to dive in. Uh, let's look at Matthew chapter 5, verses 1 through 12 together. The Bible says, Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain. And when he sat down, his disciples came to him, and he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Would you pray with me? Father, thank you um, for the opportunity we have to open your word today. Um, I pray that even though it's being done uh, via video and things aren't quite normal today, that your spirit would still move and work uh, in spite of our weaknesses, in spite of our sicknesses, Lord, that you'd open our hearts to what you have to say and that we would be obedient to you and to your word and that we would walk away from today loving you more. Pray and ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So everyone wants to be blessed. And so Jesus begins his most famous sermon uh, with statements of blessings that are known as the Beatitudes. Verses 1 through 12 of Scripture are known as the Beatitudes. Uh, but what does it mean to be blessed? Um, as many of you know, I grew up in the Chicago area. And as you can imagine, there are many cultural differences between growing up in Chicago and Texas or the South. Um, one of those differences 
is that up north, if you and I are having a conversation and we have a mutual friend, let's say uh, Carlos Campos, our student pastor here at Hallmark, and our friend Carlos is either you know going through a hard time or maybe he did uh, something foolish and made a mistake. And I would say something to you if we're talking about that, man, you know, Carlos, he, he bet everything that he owned that the New York Jets were gonna win the Super Bowl. I feel so bad for him. Or I might say, what was he thinking? Something along those lines. Here, if if two native Texans are having that conversation, it'll probably go more like, man, Carlos bet everything that he had that the New York Jets were going to win the Super Bowl. Bless his heart, right? And even though that somehow just flows in the conversation, I'm still not exactly sure what that means. Who's doing the blessing? Why is the heart involved? I'm not still fully aware of how that all works together. Um, but what does a blessed life look like? Is it having a happy marriage, uh, gifted children? Is it health? Maybe you're sick right now. Is it financial stability? Um, if you look at social media and what's been, you know, hashtag blessed, um, that's basically what you'll see is, you know, health, wealth, and just general prosperity. Um, and don't get me wrong, we we should give God thanks whenever those good things happen to us. Uh, we, we should give him the praise for that. But we have to admit that when we look at Matthew 5, at these Beatitudes, that nothing like that is included in how Jesus describes who he considers to be a blessed person. And that's because being blessed in the kingdom of heaven looks radically different than being blessed in the kingdoms of our world. Being blessed in God's economy looks far different than being blessed here on earth. So now, because we're going to be spending so much time over the next couple of months in this sermon by Jesus, uh, I think it's important that we at least have a basic context of, of what is going on. So when we get to this part of Matthew, Matthew chapter 5, this is at the very beginning of the ministry of Jesus on earth. Um, from the verses right before the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 4, Jesus has just spent 40 days in the wilderness being tempted by the devil and defeating those temptations. Uh, he's called his first four disciples to follow him. So Peter, Andrew, James, and John are now his closest followers. Um, and Matthew, as he writes this gospel, his primary audience, even though the Bible is written for everyone everywhere, his primary audience at the time of writing was a Jewish audience. So they would have had a built-in understanding of the Old Testament and Jewish culture. And in chapter 4, verses 23 through 25, we can kind of see Matthew begin to set the stage for the Sermon on the Mount. The Bible says in Matthew chapter 4, verse 23, And he went throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom, and healing every disease and every affliction among the people. So his fame spread throughout all Syria, and they brought him all the sick, those afflicted with various diseases and pains, those oppressed by demons, those having seizures and paralytics, and he healed them. And great crowds followed him from Galilee and the Decapolis, and from Jerusalem and Judea, and from beyond the Jordan. So Jesus is beginning his ministry by teaching, by preaching, by healing. And now he had just been offered the kingdoms of the world by the devil in Matthew chapter 4, but now he's going around and what is he preaching about? He's preaching about the gospel of the kingdom of heaven. And the people that are following him are large crowds, and it's made up of everybody. Uh, we have Jews, we have uh, Greeks and Romans from the Decapolis. Everyone here is following Jesus. 
They want to hear what he has to say. But when you look at the makeup of the crowd from Matthew's description, although I'm sure there was people from many different social strata and different backgrounds, it sounds like many, if not most of the people here are not in the upper strata of society. These are the people that are hurting. These are the people that are poor. These are the people that are struggling and they have suffered. So Jesus, he sees all these people coming to him. And in chapter 5, 1 and 2, he takes the traditional position of a master teacher, of a rabbi, and he now sits down and he prepares to speak. Now, the way Jesus delivers the Beatitudes uh, is not new. This was a common way for Jewish rabbis to teach by saying, you know, blessed is or blessed are. Uh, think about Psalm chapter 1, right? When David writes, he says, blessed is the man, right, who walks not in the counsel of the ungodly. He talks about what the blessed man looks like. Even 150 years before Jesus, there was a, a famous and well-respected rabbi and scholar named Ben Sira. And he had his own set of Beatitudes that started off with, you know, blessed are you or blessed is the man. And when you first read it, it sounds like Bible because it's very similar language to the Beatitudes we have here in Matthew chapter 5. But I just want to read a couple of them to you and just pay attention real quick as I read these. It says, blessed is the man who delights in his children. That's good, right? And the one who lives to see the downfall of his enemies. That sounds a little bit off. Blessed is the one who does not sin with the tongue. That's good. And the one who does not serve an inferior. So did you catch that? You are blessed if you never have to serve someone who's below you economically, socially. You are blessed if you live to see your enemies fall. Basically, you know that God is with you when you win at life. And I think we've all heard teaching like that. I think we've all been tempted to believe that, right? Whenever uh, you're not winning, whenever you're sick, whenever you're down, whenever you're discouraged, when something bad happens to us, it's like, man, I don't feel blessed right now. Uh, but we're going to see that when Jesus starts off by saying, blessed are, you know, his, his audience probably thought that he was going to say something very similar to Ben Sira, right? He's, he's going to say, blessed are you if you are uh, happy, healthy, wise, whatever. Um, but that's exactly what Jesus does not do. And so even though his method of delivery is not new to his audience, exactly what he says is brand new in his teaching. It's actually totally opposite, radically different than anything that they have heard before. You know, I, I think oftentimes if if Jesus were to come down and give a message, give a sermon today, I would often think that he was going to address, you know, he, like he would just address all the hot button issues of today. He would give us the answers to all of our questions. He would give us the proverbial ammo that we need uh, to win our arguments against those who disagree with us. He would tell us how to win. But Jesus did nothing like that here in Matthew chapter 5. He goes a totally and completely different direction. So what we see in the Sermon on the Mount is that the primary focus of Jesus is not on what we do to attain a temporary kingdom on earth. It's not focused on our temporary circumstances. Instead, what Jesus focuses on is who we are to be as people who, if we are his followers, we are currently his citizens now, and we will be inheriting the everlasting kingdom of heaven. So in Israel at this time, in a nation that was just seething with political upheaval, Jesus is going to bypass all of that and talk about things like lust and divorce. While Rome would crush its enemies with an iron fist and the Jewish freedom fighters were fighting Roman violence with more violence, Jesus is going to talk to them about the sin of anger 
and command his followers to love and pray for their enemies. The people of Israel were at this time looking for their national prosperity and wealth to be restored to them, and they would regain their seat at the table of the prominent nations of the world. But Jesus instead, he's going to focus in on giving to the poor and having treasure that is not on earth, but in heaven. So that kind of gives us the overall background of the context in which Jesus is teaching this whole sermon and as we get into these Beatitudes as well. And one final thing I want to point out about these Beatitudes is that we can tend to read them. I've read them in the past as kind of like a checklist, as a uh, self-help guide to becoming you know, more of a better Christian. Um, but these are not a self-help guide to how we can make ourselves better. And they are certainly not a self-help guide to salvation, right? It's not if, if you're poor in spirit, if you're merciful, then uh, God will choose to be kind to you and to save you. Uh, this is not what that is. Uh, this is simply Jesus showing us what it means to be his followers, what it means to be a citizen of his kingdom. You know, we, we love to do, like we, we love to be given a task a uh, set of things to check off and say, hey, God, I did this, 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 this. Now please give me your blessings, right? But Jesus is trying to communicate to them and to us today that he is the blessing. He is the gift. And so the ultimate blessing is not what we receive from God, but it's being like Jesus and being with Jesus. The Beatitudes are about being, not doing. You know, the American church, we are blessed with uh, probably the most resources uh, ever in, in church history, right? And with those resources, we are able to do things that are really cool, uh, that are really nice, right? We have more conferences, more education, we have more uh, buildings, bigger buildings than anyone at any time in history of the church. But for all of our doing, I think we've all sensed that as a whole, churches in America have lost their power, why is it that the churches seem to be losing their power? It's because I think one of the many reasons is that, myself included, we can be so focused on doing the good, right, religious things that we neglect to simply be like Jesus. So as you look at the Beatitudes, um, I'm not going to have time to go really deep into every single one of them. I apologize about that. But as you look at them, just recognize that the Beatitudes build on each other. They're like stepping stones. Each one leads to the next. Let's start with Beatitude number one. Jesus says, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. The word poor here, uh, it's the idea of a beggar by the side of the road. And not just a any beggar, but you are completely and totally destitute. You're even embarrassed to hold out your hand as you ask for alms. And so what is it that Jesus here is talking about? Being poor in what? Being poor in spirit. That's the type of spiritual need that Jesus says describes people who are blessed. We recognize that we don't have what it takes to live as God commands. As you just even read through this list of the Beatitudes, like, man, I'm not always merciful. I'm not always humble. I'm not always pure of heart. I... I just can't live up to that. And when you look at the Ten Commandments, I can't live up to those either. And that's exactly the spiritual need that Christ is trying to point out to us, right? In our spirit, the best that we have to offer God on our best day, 
think of the of the best day you've had in the last year where you got up early, you did your devotions, you were kind to your family, you were early to work, uh, whatever it may be. Uh, ultimately, it's nothing to God, right? Isaiah 64, 6 says, all of our good works are as filthy rags. And so people that are a part of the kingdom of God, we are marked by complete and total need. And when you read through Matthew and the rest of the Gospels, oftentimes you'll see, you know, why is it that Jesus, he's so kind and gentle and loving with uh, the sinners, right? The tax collectors, the prostitutes, etc. His relationship with them is so tender and loving and kind, but his relationship with the religious elite, the people who were memorizing scripture, the people who were going to the temple every day, the people who were giving on a regular basis, the people who were fasting, his relationship with them was antagonistic, right? They were his primary enemies, and why is that? It's because the tax collectors, the, the prostitutes, the thieves, they saw themselves as being needy, right? They're like, I don't have anything to give this rabbi. I don't have anything to give to the son of God. But that's not how the Pharisees, or the Sadducees felt. They felt that they were self-sufficient. They deserve a seat at the table. They were not poor in spirit. Isaiah 66 verse 2 says, But this is the one to whom I will look. He who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. You know, we don't like the word poor. No one wants to be poor. Everyone is working hard and hustling to not be poor, right? And when you look at what's been hashtag blessed, you're not going to see poverty. But Jesus says that the people of his kingdom are those who recognize that we are spiritually broke and that we are insufficient. And so we happily, willingly are completely and totally dependent on God. So beatitude number two, all right? So we are poor in spirit, and that then leads us to number two, blessed are those who mourn. Again, think of these as stepping stones. Each one leads to the next. So what are we mourning over, right? If we're poor in spirit, we recognize our spiritual bankruptcy. And so now we begin to see our sin in the light of the perfection of God, and we mourn over that sin. We mourn because our sins are many, our sins are heavy, and it it grieves us. You know, the, the older that I've gotten and the more opportunities I've had to sin and the more though that I've gotten to know the Lord, the more sin grieves me, right? I am more grieved now over sin than I was uh, when I was a teenager. And I hope that you can look back on your life and see how God is developing that grief over sin. It's like nails on a chalkboard when we fail. It's nails on a chalkboard in our spirit whenever the Holy Spirit convicts us that we are doing wrong. And that's really the difference between someone who has the attitude of, yeah, I know I've sinned, but we're all sinners and you know God's just going to forgive me anyway and it'll work out, right? Versus someone who is broken over their sin to the point of mourning. And so really you can summarize this, beat this beatitude by saying, what saddens God saddens you, right? The world makes light of sin. It laughs at sin. It's the butt of all the jokes. Uh, but we as followers of Jesus understand that this sin is what put Jesus on the cross. And so we mourn over our sin because it's so offensive that God had to send his son Jesus to die. But he says, Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. The word for comfort here is the same word that Jesus uses to describe the Holy Spirit. He's our comforter. And his Holy Spirit is what you know seals and secures our salvation. And someday the Bible says in Revelation 21 that he will wipe away every tear from our eyes and death shall be no more, neither shall there be 
mourning. Someday the sin that we mourn over will be permanently done away with, and that should bring us comfort. All right, so the next beatitude, number three, is meekness. Blessed are the meek, or the gentle, for they shall inherit the earth. Now, when they heard this, the zealots probably would have perked up a little bit because their primary thing was taking back the land of Israel by force. That's the only way that it's going to happen, is if we, with violence, take back what is rightfully ours. And so they probably, like many of us, they would probably define meekness as weakness. But that is not the case. Uh, meekness does not mean that we are simply weak people, although we are spiritually, right? We are broken and we have nothing to offer God. But the idea of meekness is the idea of a of a wild stallion that is needing to be broken, right? It's unpredictable. It's bucking around. He wants to do his own thing. And so what does the trainer break the horse of? He breaks him of his will. He doesn't break him of his power or his speed or his beauty, uh, but he breaks him of his will so that now the horse will do whatever the rider tells him to do. And so the idea of meekness really is the bending of our will to come under the will of God and under the control of our loving Heavenly Father. As citizens of a heavenly kingdom, we are completely subject to the will of our King. Our lives are not our own. And he calls the shots and we don't buck up against him, but we willingly submit to him. All right, so beatitude number four, then that leads us to the fourth one in, in verse six. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. You know, Jesus, he's just coming off of his 40-day fast in the wilderness. And Matthew, when he concludes that description, he says that Jesus was hungry. Yeah, I would imagine. I can't imagine going for that long without food, without water. You know, I've got Uber Eats on my phone. Maybe you have that or DoorDash or Grubhub or whatever. And I can sit basically anywhere in America, make a few taps on my phone, and virtually any food or drink that I want will just be hand delivered to me, right? Just the abundance of food and the ease of access that we are blessed with. Um, but man, maybe you've been outside during these blazing hot Texas summer days and you've Maybe sometimes you get stuck outside, you know, and you start to get really thirsty. And once you kind of cross a certain threshold, it's like all I can think about is when can I get some water? When can I get a drink, right? Um, and so our body is telling us, hey, I got to have something to drink. You got to help me out here. And so as the first three Beatitudes grow in our lives, grow in our spirits, a desire for righteousness, a desire for God himself will grow inside of us. We will hunger for God as if our lives depended on it, right? And that's part of really what gives followers of Jesus victory over sin, right? When we realize that we are spiritually poor and we mourn over our sin, well, how do we then get victory over it? It's not self-powered determination, right? I'm never going to do that again. I'm going to make sure that I, you know, just do better next time. It's a growing inner appetite for what pleases God. And that continues to grow until the sin that used to defeat us is simply not nearly as appealing as it once was. Because now our souls are starving and craving what pleases the Lord. And so if you are a citizen of heaven, God says you should have that hunger for righteousness. That's part of what describes us. He says you shall be satisfied. God wants you to taste and see that he is good. He wants you to experience that victory of a holy desire that builds up inside of us that overtakes the desire for sin in our lives. He's eager to give you of himself. So Beatitude number five is, Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive 
mercy in verse 7. You know, we serve a merciful king, amen? He knows that we are poor. He knows that we bring nothing to the table, yet he gives us his kingdom. He comforts us as we mourn over our uh, sinfulness. He is patient when we do buck up against his will. And he satisfies the deepest hungers and longings of our souls with himself. Serving a king like that, how can you and I not be merciful? It's a beautiful, just infinite loop of mercy where God shows us mercy and in turn we are merciful to others as well. I like how John Piper puts it. He says, Mercy preceded our existence. It brought us to the Savior. It opened our eyes to Christ. And it is now at work in us, making us merciful people. Blessed are the merciful. All right, Beatitude number six in verse eight. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. That word pure means spotless, uh, unmixed, untarnished. There's no defect there. You know, the uh, Jewish culture at this time, they were really obsessed with ritual, physical cleanliness. They had a 200-page document on how to be ritually clean on the outside. Can you imagine trying to keep up with that many requirements to be clean? And every time that you would fail to do that, feeling condemned and disconnected from God. Well, Jesus here, he's saying, hey, you can do all of those religious rituals that you want. You can look completely clean and pure on the outside, but what's on the inside can still be filthy. You can look like a good, well-behaved, moral, church-going person, and none of us would be the wiser. But on the inside, you can be full of sin. Have you ever been there before? I have. I mean, I'm at church, uh, looking good. I'm smiling when people say, hey, but I've just had an argument with my wife, and I'm so frustrated or angry that I can't even focus on what's being said. Or in my heart is just a mess of evil desires and thoughts and habits that are dominating my life. Doing that all while being a good church member. So we can work really hard to change what's on the outside, to look like a Christian, without dealing what's on the inside. And that's often the mistake that we can make is, I'm going to do what I can first to clean myself up on the external, and then I will come to God. You know, I'll serve God once I kind of get myself together, once this sin is defeated, or once I am better at X, Y, and Z. Because at the church, right, we have to look clean. We have to look like a Christian. That's not what Jesus says. That's a lie. It says, none of us, apart from Jesus, are clean. None of us can, can do uh, enough to purify ourselves. David in Psalm 51.10, this is the heart attitude that we instead need to have is, create in me a clean or a pure heart, O God. And David is asking God to create. It's something that David cannot do. It's outside of himself. It is God's work in us. He has to make us be something that we weren't before. He, he has to be the one that makes us pure. It says, blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God, right? We want to serve God, but we want to see God, right? We want to see God move and work and do mighty things inside my heart, inside of your heart, at our church, in our community. Um, I would love to be a part of the amazing things that God is doing around the world. I want to see the work of God because it can't be our own work. So really the ultimate blessing here is that someday, God will completely and permanently purify our hearts and we will see him and we will be with him in his kingdom forever. So blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see 
God. I know we're kind of running through these, and I appreciate you bearing with me here. But now in verse 9, we see beatitude number 7. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the sons of God. Now, this is the only time in the New Testament that this word peacemaker is used. It's the idea of resolving conflicts with the truth. You know, we are to be instigators. The world right now, it's full of people who are instigating anger, hatred, division, violence. But we are to be instigators of reconciliation, reconciling people with each other. And ultimately, though, through sharing the gospel, reconciling people to God through Jesus. And why does Jesus say that when that happens, we will called, we will be called the, the sons of God? It's because we will be acting like our heavenly father. You know, my daughter Priya, it, it always feels good whenever people tell me, you know, she looks just like you, Nathan. I can see you in her. That always just makes me feel really good when people say that. And when we are peacemakers, we look like our Father who is in heaven. Because that's the whole reason, right? The idea of reconciliation is that we were enemies of God. We were against him. We were against his kingdom. And yet in spite of that, he sent his son Jesus to pay for our sins so that we could be reconciled to him and enter into relationship with him. Whenever we are doing the work of reconciliation, we are looking like our heavenly father. And then finally, in verses 10 through 12, uh, Jesus concludes the Beatitudes uh, by saying, Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Right? He begins to talk about, hey, serving me, being this type of person, in a worldly kingdom will oftentimes bring you pain. It will oftentimes bring you even persecution. And it's just ironic, right? The clash of Jesus telling us that we are blessed, all the while we are, he is also saying that we will be persecuted. And to me, this is probably the most clear indication that his idea of what it means to be a blessed person is just radically different than what you and I tend to, to think as blessed, right? If we are going through something hard, especially for the sake of the gospel, because we are trying to live a Christ-honoring life, and if difficulty comes our way because of that, Jesus says, you are blessed. And so his take on what it means to be a blessed person, it's all about being. It's not about doing, right? It's He's calling us to, to set aside our checklists of what it means to be a good Christian and so that when we check those boxes, we feel like we are blessed or we feel like we are right with God. Instead, Jesus says, hey, you are right with me. You are blessed when you look like me, when your heart is being changed by me, when your heart reflects who I am and who I am making you to be. And so the Sermon on the Mount, as you kind of read through all of these blessings, uh, it's it's very passive in the sense of how how do we receive these blessings? Jesus doesn't tell us to do stuff. He just says, you shall receive, you shall be given, you shall be given mercy, whatever it may be. The gospel is not about our performance. It's about what Jesus did for us so that we could be like him, so that we could be with him, right? So that we can be saved, so that we can be citizens of a heavenly kingdom and that, that we grow in our desire of a life that's characterized by these beatitudes. And so this morning, if, if you're watching and uh, you are a follower of Jesus, but man, with all of your doing, you're just wearing yourself out, right? Your whole Christian life has been reduced to what you do or what you don't do. Um, I got to tell you, there, 
that is not how God wants us to live, right? If, if your joy is completely dependent on how you perform, then you are not going to experience the blessed life that Jesus wants us all to. Our, the very core of our foundation of our relationship with God is not what we do. It's what Jesus did. And we can simply rest in that as he makes us into these types of kingdom people. Um, so you don't have to be something big to be uh, to, to uh, matter to God, to do something great for God, right? I've always had a desire uh, to do something great for the kingdom of God. Well, Jesus tells us, hey, if you want to be great, be low, be humble, be broken over your sin. Just be like me. Our value in the kingdom of God is not determined by our activity. It's determined by our union, by our relationship with Jesus. That is what gives you and me value. It's not our performance. God could make a rock perform better than me. He can make anything perform a task better than us to align better with his commands. But his desire for us is that we look like Jesus. And so if you're here this morning, if you're watching, um, and you realize, man, I've just been, I've been living a performance-based life. I would encourage you to, to bring that to the Lord today and ask him to help you to simply rest and to change your desires from, to, to look beyond doing and desire to simply be like Jesus. Maybe as you listen to this this morning, though, you realize, man, I haven't had any of these desires for these things. Um, I, there's no way that I can live up to this. Um, I've, I've never heard that I can have a relationship with Jesus like this. I would encourage you that the gospel, again, it's not about your performance. Your standing before God, your relationship with him, it's not about all the good things that you do, right? The Bible says they are like filthy rags before the Lord. But Jesus instead, he offers himself as a free gift. He says, hey, my yoke is easy. My burden is light. And if you simply repent of your sins, turn away from them, and trust in Christ alone for salvation, Jesus has promised that you will be a citizen of his kingdom. And he's promised that he will begin to develop within you these beatitudes that we've looked at today. You know, God will clean you up first, and then he will make you into a new being, a new creation with new desires and a new heart. You know, there's only one person that has ever completely lived the Beatitudes, and that's Jesus. So if you read this to list today and you feel discouraged, like, man, I'm not doing any of these things, you're on the right track. You're poor in spirit. Now look to Jesus to save you. Look to Jesus to sustain you in this life, because it is hard. We do get sick. We do go through hard times, but God is good, and all the time, God is good. So God is offering you today the same thing that he offered people in the book of Matthew. Repent and follow me. Let's pray together. Lord, thank you for this time we've had to gather, even though it's over video. I thank you for uh, Christ. I thank you for his message on the Sermon on the Mount and the Beatitudes and that you do not seek from us a performance-driven relationship, but you simply grant us your love. You grant us yourself because you love us, Lord, because you are merciful, because you are good. And Father, I ask that you forgive me when I have uh, sought to elevate my performance to be key in my relationship with you. And Lord, I pray that if there's anyone watching or listening this morning that they realize today that they've never entered into a relationship with you, I pray that you would convict them now. I pray that you would uh, help them to repent of their sin, turn away from their sin, and trust not in their good works, but trust in you alone for salvation. I pray and ask all these things in Jesus' name. 
Amen. Well, thank you all again for uh, just bearing with us during these crazy times. Um, I'm looking forward to being together in person again soon. Until then, though, have a blessed week.